Femoral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. This is the sound of the American bison. A bull wades across stream to feed on grass. A thunderstorm rolls in. It's the kind of thing that must happen all the time. But this time, someone was there with a backpack full of audio gear. How many recordings do you think you've made total? Oh my gosh. Um... 7,500, 10,000, something like that, maybe. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a pretty big number. I mean, I just recorded 150 hours working along the Mississippi River for two and a half months. That's a lot of recordings. My name is Jacob Job. I am a research associate at Colorado State University working for the sound and light ecology team. Someone just asked you what you do. What's the, you know, real quick pitch? <laughs> I just laugh and be like, uh, <laughs> I, I usually turn to someone who knows me and say, well, why don't you describe it? Um, but I mean, essentially, I record the sounds of wilderness to bring to people to familiarize them with these places so that they care about it. And once they care about it, conservation falls into place that much easier. That's what I say. In other words, Jacob takes epic backpacking trips out into some of the wildest places on the planet to generate a record what those places sound like. This sounds like my dream job. Is that a common job? Um, no. <laughs> no, it's not. Certainly not with our team and certainly not with the National Park Service on this official capacity. I'm a research scientist. I trained as a research scientist. I came into a postdoc position, decided I wanted nothing to do with research science anymore, but I still love science and I love science communication. Told my bosses, I was just like, hey guys, I'm kind of, I'm kind of done with this. <laughs> Cringing as I'm watching their faces. I just came from a science communication seminar with NPR on campus. I think it was like Christopher Joyce talking about science communication. That was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. I said, all right, I'm inspired by this. I'm not happy with research. Let's just give it a shot and see where it goes. To their credit, they're just like, all right, so what can we do to help you be successful? And I said, well, I'm kind of interested in this audio recording idea as a conservation tool. I didn't force their hand. They were, they were welcoming to it and they've encouraged it, but I just kept pushing it in front of them so they couldn't ignore it. I've got this sort of baseline job, which is to run this research laboratory with undergraduate students who help the parks quantify noise pollution. That's always there, that's been there. All of this other stuff I do on the side, this recording stuff, when I can make time for it, I do it after hours. And they've slowly allowed me to incorporate it more and more into my main job. I think I just have better use working with the public and sort of conveying what all those wonderful scientists do to the public so we have greater scientific literacy. I start this position in March of 2014. In May of 2014, I'm going to Hawaii to work at a National Geographic BioBlitz event. A bunch of 
scientists and citizens convene on Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. And the idea is just to document as much biodiversity as they can find in the park. Morning two, I recorded a dawn chorus where the birds wake up, the world wakes up as the sun comes up. That was my first real dawn chorus recording and I was just blown away. I just, I just couldn't believe it. Both how beautiful it was, but how predictable it was too. And I love predictability. And I think that's part of just being a scientist. I started working in Rocky Mountain National Park, set up a project with Yellowstone National Park. I worked in Sequoia and Kings Canyon for almost two years. And then Lewis and Clark National Historical Park up in Oregon, been to Mesa Verde. Then I've gone down to Central America and Costa Rica and Mexico. I just spent two and a half months on the road recording the sounds of bird migration and the stories of people living alongside those birds from basically the mouth of the Mississippi all the way up to the headwaters in northern Minnesota. Working in Rocky Mountain National Park helped widen the focus of the project. The project there was to record all of the songbirds. So we have this library of the songbirds that call that park home during the spring and summer in anticipation of climate change and the impact it's going to have on the park. Some species are going to be doing well in climate change in the park. Some new species will arrive, but we're going to lose some species as well. The park won't be suitable habitat anymore. Realized I I was missing the forest through the trees. And what we're really talking about when we're talking about climate change is sort of this whole change to the ecosystem and how that ecosystem sounds. So I started focusing on entire sound events in the park thunderstorms and the elk rut, dawn choruses and amphibian choruses at night. That's when I really started to go to all the depths of the park, high elevation, tundra, low elevation, lakes, rivers, streams, ponds, beaver ponds, you name it. And most of the time I'm completely off trail trying to avoid people as much as possible because people make noise and noise isn't good for my recordings. From inception to execution, this work is a mix of serendipity and rigorous planning. It starts with pitching an idea to a park. Sometimes the parks have heard about the work I've done and they ask me, you show up at a park, you get your bearings straight the first day where you're going to sleep in a tent on the ground. More than likely, sometimes you get a bunkhouse. You're there for X number of days, hiking two, three, four, five miles, all the way up to 20 miles in a day just to get to some of these places that are your objective. So I want to go record a high elevation tundra thunderstorm. Every day you've got your objectives, thunderstorms, birds, elk, moose, wolves, bears, whatever it is. And then at the end of the day, you're exhausted, you come back, you eat boil bag food. And you maybe have a little energy to read before you fall asleep at 8, 30, 9 o'clock and you're up at 4 again and, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. What's your longest trip look like? Well, two and a half months. <laughs> just finished with that. The normal type project for the Park Service, my longest trip was, I think it was 11 days, 10 days. We ended up stalking bighorn sheep up Mount Whitney in California in the Sierra. And so we had camped at 
high elevation, 13,000 feet or so, and we spent several days following bighorn sheep trying to get some good audio and video of them during their rut, you know, where they bash heads together. That was, that was a long trip. You have to get up there first, and then you have to find them, and then, then you have to, like, actually get good audio. I've got a day pack. It's got a lot of water. It's got some trail food. Some of the essentials. I have two setups I carry with me. One of them is a parabolic dish. The ones that they use at, like, sporting events, exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. The sideline of a football game or something. So you can, like, bring into focus the sound of a, a big hit or a quarterback yelling a cadence or something. So it really focuses on capturing what I call cameo recordings of individual organisms. A bird, it can really bring into focus right there in your ear or a distant wolf. Some individual. I also have my soundscape set up. It records in stereo, but it's sort of constructed like a human head. Two ears or microphones. It's asymmetrical. One of them's sort of more forward-facing than the other. One's higher up than the other. It allows you to put on headphones and pinpoint with your eyes closed the location of every sound you hear around you. It reproduces the 3D soundscape around you. And then I got 100 feet of XLR cable. And so I'm, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 pounds at any given time. You can be as quiet as you want in the outdoors, but if you're sitting there, things are going to notice and they're going to act differently. So what I do is set that microphone up and then I retreat as far as I can. So, you know, 50 feet away with that XLR cord and I'll hide behind a tree or I'll lay on the ground and just be as still as can be and allow everything to happen as naturally as possible. I've probably gone out with an assistant three or four times. I prefer to be by myself just because it's that much harder to coordinate everything and be quiet when you've got multiple people. I try to describe it as if you're on a hunt. You're moving slowly, intentionally. You're not wasting any energy. You're avoiding walking through noisy areas. You're not talking. That's a given. And when you do move, you're using less of your small joints and more of your big joints. And what I mean by that is you're rotating at your hips or your back rather than your neck or your leg. If you're going to move from side to side to grab something, you're not just throwing your arm out to the side. You're kind of moving like a chameleon. When they move, they sort of do this whole body movement that makes it harder to notice movement. Trying to blend into the background as much as possible. Does it ever go horribly wrong? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the average day. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't go horribly wrong because there's always some cool sound out there to listen to. I've missed thunderstorms that I was gunning for, but you find something else. If you're able to or willing to just sit, patience and being quiet, those two things alone can put you in contact with the coolest situations outside. Some of it is understanding the lay of the land, understanding how animals move and the habitat, and so you know where to place yourself for these things to happen. But if you can just sit silently for hours at a time, things will come to you. You will see the best things. And so, you know, that's that's a fallback plan when things go wrong. 
this is a good one. So the Junction Butte Pack. We're hiking in. It's it's January. It's 6 a.m., 5.30 a.m. It's blackout. We're going to record these wolves. I've got my equipment all set up. It's on my shoulder, 50 feet of XLR cord before I learned how to properly manage XLR cord. The wolves start howling. And so I threw down the tripod and I tried to unravel the cords and they were knotted up. And so like... There's all this noise, and then they stop howling before I even get still. And I'm just, like, bummed out big time. I did have two people with me that time. I, I motioned them to just sit in the snow, and hopefully it was going to happen again. I've got the headphones on. I'm monitoring. I can hear the snow falling around us. And all of a sudden, I hear the crunch of footprints in the snow around us, close enough to where I know they're within 20, 30 yards, and... I hear just this little yip. The coyotes in that area had woken up and they all went off in this three dog chorus. Totally unexpected. Didn't know they were there. Got this most incredible recording coyotes waking up in Yellowstone. And then the wolves howled again later on and so I got that too but it started off as this disaster. One of the perks of the job, Jacob encounters what few humans will ever experience firsthand. One of the coolest things I got to do in Sequoia, it's called Crystal Cave. It goes back about half three quarters of a mile. It's open for tourists. But at 6 p.m., it shuts down. There's a big gate, and there's nobody back there. They gave me access. They gave me a key to go back into this cave by myself one night. Being back under the earth that far back, completely dark. There's no light. Not that I can detect very few people, I bet, get to experience that. I've stalked moose for a couple hours, waiting for them to do something, and I got distracted for 20 seconds. The next thing you know, I look up and it's walking right towards me. I press record, jump behind a tree, and record this moose 15 yards from my microphones, and it's just eating and grunting, and it just starts peeing right next to the microphone. It's not like the coolest thing in the world, but I don't think many people have heard that, and I'm really happy that I have. I just got done in Minnesota listening to a den of wolf pups and their mother howling. Hiked out in the middle of the night. The guy who I was with, the wolf biologist, retreated back down the trail a few hundred yards and left me there, and he did his howl. He's an incredible howler. I thought it was the wolf. They started howling right away. I'm sure you've gotten asked this before. Do you have a favorite sound? Oh my gosh, do I have a favorite sound? Um, I do. It is the sound of wilderness in the North Woods, especially northern Minnesota. It's at night, at camp. The haunting, haunting call of common loons echoing 
from lake to lake. It's just the best sound in the world to me. When I first heard them, I was fishing with my dad in northern Michigan. Since then, I've taken several trips into the North Woods, Michigan, Minnesota, searching for that sound and that experience. And now my parents live in a place in somewhat northern Michigan where they have loons nesting on their very small lake. So I love going to the house there and hearing that. It's just one of my favorite places to be. So once you have this incredible library of the natural world captured and cataloged, what exactly do you do with all of it? I think online in sort of a library like SoundCloud is one of the worst places it can go. That being said, Jacob's SoundCloud is amazing. He has his site set on more participatory mediums. So what I do is I work with the parks and create either interactive exhibits. You can go to Sequoia and Kings Canyon. They just opened up this rotating permanent exhibit that goes through all their visitor centers. And you stand under these like sound domes, parabolic dish above your head, and you can watch this film we put together. It's completely non-narrated. It's the soundscapes of Sequoia and Kings Canyon. And there's accompanying video. And it's just this immersive experience. It should, when you're done with it, just blow your mind about what opportunity exists out in the park. That's one way to get people's imagination going and get them excited about the park. We put together a story map. So essentially, we we followed a trail that exists in the park. It starts in the foothills about 1,200 feet, and then it goes all the way up to Alpine Zone up to 14,000 feet. And we recorded the sounds, all types of sounds, animal, water, wind, thunder, whatever, all the way along this trail through these different ecosystems. The visitors can put on the headphones and explore this map and listen to these sounds. And there's accompanying text that interprets the sounds and what they mean and give people a better understanding of what they're experiencing when they experience it in the park. Yellowstone and Rocky Mountain National Park and Sequoia and Kings Canyon all have sound libraries where every recording I've ever made in those parks, they're on there for people to just listen to. At a minimum, it tells them where it was recorded and what the focal subject is. And then with Yellowstone, we make what are called audio postcards. We take our coolest sounds of Yellowstone National Park there's a short bit of narration. Sawmill geyser continuously erupts short bursts of water. But not too much, just enough to let people know what the scene is, what's going on. And then we just float those out there on social media, and it's another way to get people engaging with the park and thinking about the park in a different way. The hope is they become advocates or stewards of that place. That's a somewhat realistic hope. 
especially now that our public lands are under attack in a lot of ways. A lot of them have been shrunk, giving way to oil and gas interests. That should never happen. When you've set aside places to be protected for humans to be able to go and test their metal against wilderness, to be inspired and awestruck, I'm an advocate of preservation. So there's conservation and preservation. I would love if we could protect some places where humans can't go. I don't need a place to exist for my enjoyment. I would like it just to exist for the fact that it supports life for other organisms that I don't need to be a part of. But if I can get people just to care about conservation of our already protected places, that's great. If I can get people to think about their impact on natural places when they're out there. So if they can be quieter, if they're not revving their engine, if they're not yelling, they're not playing music, if they can just think about experiencing the outdoors in a more natural way, that's a huge win for me. Perhaps these soundscapes tap something deep within us, a time before. But the pristine place evoked is in some ways only a fantasy. Wilderness doesn't exist. It does as a talking point. It's great. But noise pollution has completely removed wilderness from this planet. It's hard to go longer than 10, 15 minutes without a jet flying over, like the kind you take on vacation. I think you're anywhere in Colorado or most any place, any further than 17 miles from a road. And that seems like a long way, but these are low frequency engine sounds, they travel forever especially when you get in these canyons. Generators, oil and gas, the sound of drilling or pumping or post-production. I mean, just low-frequency noise, the sound of human advancement. Um, it's just, it's everywhere, and it's, it's almost impossible to escape for any period of time. I love solitude. I love silence. I hate noise pollution. <laughs> There's a very real thing that people love the din of city life, and part of that is the energy and the noise that comes along with it. There are cool urban sounds, for sure, but if I had the choice to get rid of them all, if we could somehow make society quieter, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I wouldn't miss any of it. We could do a better job of getting rid of the unnecessary noise pollution. Vehicles that are overly loud, motorcycles without mufflers. I mean, stuff that's just not necessary, and it's just a way for people to peacock their way around the world. For now, freedom from pollution is only ever temporary. Are there any places left untouched by human noise? Bad news. They've all been touched by human sounds. It's just a matter of how long you can go between noise pollution events. The boundary waters of northern Minnesota, that canoe area wilderness up there, you can go quite a long time, hours, or maybe even a whole day sometimes without noise pollution. That's really special. But like Rocky Mountain National Park, you think it's this wilderness area, and you can be in some of the more popular parts of that park, and you can't go more than 15 seconds. And you certainly can't go during rush hour, both morning and evening, more than a minute and a half to two minutes without an overflight, a jet landing into Denver International Airport. You know, the desert is a great place to find silence sometimes. But again, 
overflights will get you eventually. It's just incredibly rare. And the fact that I'm telling you this will probably alert you to this for the rest of your life. So I'm apologizing right now. The more you start to pay attention, the more you realize everything we think is this grand outdoor experience is manipulated, controlled, touched by the human hands. It's almost as far away from that wilderness experience as being in a city park in some ways. I mean, I can be around grizzly bears and wolves, and you don't see that in a city park. And that's, that's a very real thing that can put you in a lot of danger quickly. But there are still elements that are completely missing from that wilderness experience, and you can't ignore that. Like climate change, dehabitation, and other symptoms of human advancement, noise pollution alters the behavior of wildlife. Imagine going on a date with somebody to a bar. First date, you're trying to communicate some information to them, but the bar is so loud. What do you do? You talk louder. You move closer. You maybe move to a different, quieter part of the bar. You talk during gaps in the noise. You gesticulate more. You do all these adjustments to make yourself heard. Well, the birds are the same. Birds avoid singing in the noisiest places, which can be hard. If you're in the middle of a city, it all may be noisy. They also adjust their songs so they're in a different frequency level that is not being overlapped with urban noise. In the marine world, fish, whales, dolphins, there's evidence to suggest that shipping lanes, the Navy, sonar, causes these animals to display these behavioral adjustments, avoid areas altogether, and sometimes even beach themselves because of noise pollution. It's so loud. Insects, we see insects responding to noise pollution, some mammal species, amphibians. We see a response across the board of vertebrates and in some invertebrates. As the world changes, the moments frozen in these recordings reflect less and less the character of our planet. They become remembrances. What did this place used to sound like? All of my work in Rocky is based on the idea that these species are going to shift their ranges. And so new species will show up, species will be lost completely. The soundscape because of the birds and maybe amphibians disappearing. And pika, pika, these little adorable little rabbit rodents at the top of mountains. They can only go so high up in elevation before they run out of mountain and they can't exist anymore. That's going to happen. Certainly I don't see any trajectory where that doesn't happen because of where we're going with climate change. As far as like development, you know, every time I go to my parents' house, there's another house built on the lake and that gets a little bit louder. In national parks, we do a pretty good job of protecting and thinking about soundscapes, but you know, there are construction projects or new trails that get put in and that puts people in new places and that changes the soundscape for sure. What I'm doing when I record certain birds in Rocky Mountain National Park that are projected to not live there in the future because of climate change is creating acoustic fossils. The moment in time that was captured that will never happen in the same way again. 
It's no different in some ways than finding a fossil dinosaur bone. It's, it's evidence of something that used to be there. It's important to capture that now as a record of what once was. As in any kind of documentary work, every editorial decision has an ethical consideration. I fall back on my background as a scientist, understanding how all the pieces of an ecosystem work and what's natural and what's not natural. I know when I've interrupted things, I know when things are responding to me, they're vocalizing because of me. If I'm editing tape and I'm cutting things certain ways, I know that I can't cut certain bird songs a certain way because they're not singing in a way that they normally would. You have to remember your objectives of the project. Whatever those are, you make sure whatever decisions you make fall in line with those objectives. I'll get a really good recording and I'll remove the sound of an aircraft flying over. Well, what was the objective of the project? Was it to accurately represent the sounds of that location? If so, I'm going to leave the jet there. Is the objective to produce an awe-inspired recording, just get people excited? Then yeah, I may cut that out of there. I rely on ecology, and I rely on the goals or objectives of the project to make those decisions. In our big, noisy world, what becomes a fossil next? Jacob has a hit list. Most every night, I fall asleep dreaming about these sounds. I would love to capture the sounds of the Sandhill Crane migration through Kearney, Nebraska. And that sounds maybe about as boring as can be to some people, but like, can you imagine several hundred thousand cranes all moving through this area at the same time? And I don't know if you've ever heard of Sandhill Crane. That's your homework for the day. Go listen to one online. It's such a loud prehistoric noise. Listening to all them at once would be incredible. More and more, I find myself focusing less on individuals or organisms rather than ecosystems and places. I would love to go to Grand Staircase Escalante and the Coyote Bridge Natural Area and record a dawn chorus there just to advocate for those places that are under threat. My dream, my absolute dream right now, and I'm, I'm tossing around how do I approach this, is to get up to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge hearing the sound of arctic wolves and seabirds and sea ducks and shorebirds as close as to wilderness as we have in this country there was a rider in the 2017 tax bill that opened up anwar for oil and gas exploration i want to get up there and record the sounds of that place before that's happened because that's not a place that will recover period One of the things that is so chilling and horrifying to me is that you never get it back. You can't, there's no, there's no, there's no rewind. There's, you never get that thing ever again. 100% true. That's, I don't, you know, and I think this is where our science education fails us in grade school and high school. We don't instill upon people the fragility of places like this and moments like that. And we make it about facts and numbers and things that they have to learn, but we don't really inspire awe and wonder. So a place like Anwar, if you were to go in there and put in roads and start drilling, you're disrupting so many systems and processes and animals and plants. 
And because the tundra is so slow growing, the growing season, and I almost scoff to say growing season, although it's getting longer, believe it or not. I guess you don't have to believe it or not. Climate change is happening. It's so short that for that place to overcome that damage, it would take tens of thousands of years, if ever. If I could push a button right now to preserve this place, to lock it as totally protected, but humans never get to go, and that includes myself, I would absolutely do in a heartbeat just because it exists and it doesn't have to exist for us. It can just exist for the sake of existing. When you consider all of humanity's threats stacked against the natural world, it can feel insurmountable, hopeless. The work of groups like the Sound and Light Ecology Team help keep things in perspective. The next step for me is this National Geographic project that I'm working on called Voices of a Flyway. And a flyway, by the way, is a route that migratory birds take to move across continents or oceans or hemispheres. It's just a route that they take over and over year after year. I've already got the natural world covered in some ways. That's where my focus is. But now I'm turning my attention to the voices of people living alongside the natural world who have a relationship with it one way or the other. Maybe they farm the land or they fish or they hunt. Maybe they're a conservationist or biologist. Maybe they're a bird watcher. Maybe they just live out in the country. The idea of this project is to understand, A, our relationship with the natural world, build an idea of commonality between all of us. We all rely on healthy ecosystems for food and water and clean air and economic advancement. We're so divided in how we talk about each other and we think about our place in this world. The goal is to bring in commonality first and make us all neighbors again in some way. But also the second part of this is climate change, noise pollution, and habitat destruction. All of these things affect birds and other organisms. 40 to 45% of the world's bird species are threatened with extinction because of our activity on this planet. And that doesn't really connect well with people It's so far removed from their lives, it may be a luxury even for them to even think about stuff like that. The goal is to show, yeah, these birds are struggling along this flyway, this route along the Mississippi because of habitat loss and pollutants and so on and so forth. But people are also struggling for the same exact reason. It's not just the birds, it's you too that are going to suffer. Because let's face it, Everything we do, we use industry, oil and gas, mining, logging. Those are the things that make our life possible, at least how we've come to learn how to go about life. They're not going anywhere, and I don't want them to go anywhere, but I do want them to go about their business in a way that is as sustainable as possible and preserves or protects the surrounding area so that the birds can have the best chance for a future as possible, but so can people. The biggest component and throughline of Jacob's work is just getting people to listen. In Rocky Mountain National Park last week or the week before I gave a talk and someone came up to me and they had listened to some of the recordings and they just said, I just can't believe that this is out there and 
when I'm outside, I listen to everything so much more and it's sort of changed my way of interacting when I'm outdoors. It's opened up a new world for me. I hear that quite a bit. And then I've had a hundred people tell me, you've ruined listening for me because now I hear every airplane as it flies over all the cars and I can't unhear it. The only time in my life where I'm truly mindful and truly present in the moment is when I'm listening outside. I live so much of my life planning three, four, five steps ahead, trying to be as efficient as possible, trying to be as productive as possible. That prevents you from living in a moment. When I'm out there, I can just be, which is such a relief. It's almost like I'm sleeping with a few other sensory systems working. It also just brings me into contact with the coolest events and organisms that I wouldn't see otherwise if I wasn't just sitting and listening and being patient. This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Alex Williams and produced by Matt Frederick, Trevor Young, and Max Williams. By the way, what does your SoundCloud name mean? Gavia Immer. That's the Latin name of the common loon. G-A-V-I-A-I-M-M-E-R. That's also my license plate in my car. Jacob Job has a new National Geographic podcast called Voices of a Flyway. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And find us at ephemeral.show.
Next time on Ephemeral. Alice Guy Blachet was the first female film director. The Lumiere brothers projected their first motion picture in 1895, and she starred in 1896. It's been hard for people looking through 20th century eyes or 21st century eyes to see her as a person. <laughs> if you say she directed a thousand films, you're really taking her out of context. But she did everything, the scenes, the costumes, and the first actual story film in a minute. Wow, how did anybody ever do that? Well, she started in the beginning. Support Ephemeral by recommending an episode, leaving a review, or dropping us a line at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And learn more at ephemeral.show.